0: Hey crew, before we get started today, I want to let you know about our Discord. Not like a disagreement between two parties, but our Discord chat. We have a channel called fittingly enough, Just Enough Trope, that represents all of our network shows here on the Just Enough Trope network. Uh, We have people there chatting about movies and comics, TV shows, and Star Trek, video games, and more. If you're a Discord user, we'd love to have you come chat with us. I'll leave an invite link in the show notes for this show, so click on that, introduce yourself, and get chatting. On the show today, I'm talking with Mike Collins. He's an illustrator, a writer, and a storyboard artist who is immensely accomplished and immensely fun to talk to. We had a great talk about this episode, our first episode of Discovery that we're covering on the show, so I'm excited about that. Sorry the show is a little late, but this is actually a last-minute sort of replacement. I wanted to make sure that Discovery was represented immediately, and I had such fun talking to Mike that I wanted to push this right into the rotation. So we'll be back next week to talk about something else, and with that, let's get underway.
1: It's worked so far, but we're not out
0: yet. I want to know what you're thinking There are some things you can't hide I want to know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing frequencies is open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and you may be worried about climate change, about Brexit, about wars and rumors of wars, but they've got Al Green in the future, people. Everything's going to be okay. I'm joined on this episode by Mike Collins. Mike is an artist and a writer and has worked in comics in the U.S. and U.K. for over 35 years, providing illustration for Marvel's line of Star Trek comics as well as Trek comics under DC's Wildstorm imprint. He's also been the cover artist on Pocketbook's line of Star Trek Starfleet Corps of Engineers books, and along with Ian Edgington was the co-author of the 2002 SCE novella, Caveat Emptor. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, A pleasure. Thanks
0: for having me. That's good to have you. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, the seventh episode of Star Trek Discovery. Writing for a weekly TV show is no easy feat. You've got to balance multiple characters and premises, develop those characters and their arcs over the course of a season, provide a unique and engaging story. on a weekly basis, bring it in on time and on budget, and do the whole thing all over again the next week. The teams of writers behind each Star Trek series spend months charting the course that our characters will take. They shepherd their stories from pen to set to screen, and it's their careful stewardship of those characters that makes them so well-drawn and captivating. Sure, Nicholas Meyer may have banged out the script for Wrath of Khan in a fortnight, but he didn't have to work on the search for Spock, and look how that turned out. The secret up in the Sci-Fi TV Writer's Toolkit, however, is the time travel episode. Want a character to reconcile with their past? Have them meet their estranged parent when they were young? Need a ticking clock for the plot? Have a character witness an impending apocalypse? As the scion of Trek storytelling on 21st century streaming TV, Discovery has the unenviable task of building a new narrative while keeping the attention of a new audience. But with a little time travel magic, it allowed our protagonists to catch a glimpse of what is possible if they can escape their own insecurities. We'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Mike, I always ask new guests to the program about their backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan?
1: Uh, it was so This is a weird one. Okay, uh, in bring Britain, it on. In Britain, we, we didn't get the Star Trek TV show until the week after the moon landing. So this is actually the 50th <laughs> right. anniversary. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so this is actually like the 50th anniversary of Star Trek now, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Um, okay. But the weird thing was, is uh, um, we, we used to have this uh, weekly... Uh, anthology comic in Britain called TV 21 and mm-hmm. it started off doing a lot of the Jerry Anderson stuff so uh, Captain Scarboard, Scarlet, Far Black 5, um, all sort of uh, the the, the, uh, the puppet tie and stuff mm-hmm. and it started to diversify a bit and somehow or other before the TV show was on air over here they got the license to do Star Trek as a comic. Okay, So as a what would I have been, been at eight at the time. So as far as I was concerned Star Trek, the TV show, was just like Batman, the TV show. It was based on a comic.
0: Okay. okay.
1: (laughs) In my head, Star Trek has always been this TV adaptation of a comic strip I really, really liked.
0: (laughs) Sure. Okay. So your way in was comics then, literally.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: That's interesting. Now, I know that there's, uh, of course, Doctor Who has been on for even longer than Star Trek. Uh, oh, yeah. And started started in the UK. And that's something that we got a little later over here. Um, and there's a lot of like comics and uh, and of course, a lot of tie in novels and radio plays for Doctor Who as well. So are you getting so you're getting Star Trek comics, but are you getting books? Uh, are you getting the photo novels like they had like in the uh, late 60s and early 70s? Yeah, we we
1: had uh, the, the well, we, we had the James Blish adaptations, of the episodes where uh, because James, oh, yes, was, yes, yes. He was based in Britain, so he hadn't seen the show. Uh, You you read the first couple of adaptations that he's got in there, and there's this wildly different show that was going on in his head.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, Which, which I loved. I just thought it was great. Um, uh, That was quite enjoyable. Uh, We had, we we did have the photo novels. I I seem to remember those coming a bit later, but Mm. I do remember getting the uh, the hard bubble gum with the trading cards that built up into a big picture of. uh, I think it was from Mud's Women, which is quite ironic considering the episode we're talking about today.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) It's interesting to see how early authors, sci-fi authors and creators interpreted the world of Star Trek before we had the sort of canonized idea. You know, even in the first season of Star Trek, they're still building on uh, what's really going on here. You know, the Federation doesn't make an appearance until like a dozen episodes in. And just the concepts uh, that the, the way that the franchise was being built. And yeah, having somebody like James Blish, who's, you know, very creative and a great author, just kind of just running with it, like seeing what he can come up with.
1: Yeah, and, and having Spock slamming doors as well. That was... Yeah,
0: see, I'm acting very differently, yeah. <laughs> it's like the uh, it's like the, um, the splinter of the mind's eye, you know, the novel that was written as yeah. the sort of sequel to Star Wars in case it didn't work out and seeing the, like, the different... We don't usually cross the streams here on the show and talk about uh, <laughs> Star Wars, but I think it fits. But seeing the different concept of the Force and, and the way that, uh, you know, what Darth Vader's ultimate goal really is.
1: There's a whole scene in there in uh, Sprint of the Mind's Eye where Darth Vader goes on about killing Luke's dad. And it's like.
0: Right. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Figure you know, that he's... out, canon freaks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to dive into Star Trek in just a little bit, but first I wanted to talk about uh, another sci-fi franchise that you've got a long history with that I mentioned before, Doctor Who. Uh, You've been drawing for Who in comics since its return in 2005 uh, for Panini's Doctor Who magazine, as well as uh, graphic novels and the IDW run. There's a lot of similarities in philosophy between Who and Trek. In fact, uh, Never Cruel or Cowardly would fit pretty well into the Starfleet charter, I think.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I was like doubly blessed because I'd grown up with Doctor Who as a thing there anyway and having Star Trek as well. It was this, this – those two shows and I think Stan Lee's take on Marvel Comics
0: mm-hmm. basically
1: fixed my moral compass.
0: Oh, for me as well. It's
1: all about be good, you know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> be good. Quite, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, being good is really complicated. It's never as easy as just just be good. Those words, uh, never cruel or cowardly, of course, originated from uh, Who writer and script editor Terrence Dix, who we lost just uh, this last week. Yeah, he was a pillar of the franchise. Did you know Terrence?
1: I didn't know Terrence. Um, but uh, like a lot of other British Doctor Who fans, because we're going back before the days of DVDs, we're going back before the days of VHS or Betamax, uh, Mm -hmm. the only way you got to re-experience a Doctor Who episode was like the Star Trek James Bush books, was you read the novelization. Terence did a lot of those, so he was like one of my main authors growing up. Um, Quite recently, I got to illustrate, there's a a new uh, collection of Doctor Who stories coming out. Uh, It's in October or November. Oh, this is and from target books. Yeah. It's a series yeah. of short stories, and each one takes place either before or after or during a TV adventure. And I got to illustrate each of the book, each of the stories in the book. And uh, one of the stories is written by Terrence. That's and it's like, for me, that was like, uh, you, you know, that thing where you're like, you're a kid again, because it was me <laughs> yeah. reading a yeah. Terrence sticks, Dr. Who story. And I get to illustrate it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I thought, yeah.
1: Right. I've got to, yeah. I've got to meet the guy some point and just say, you know, what a thrill. And then, unfortunately, you know, he he passed away last week. So, yeah, I missed that.
0: Yeah, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes where uh, listeners can pre-order that a book from Target Books if they want to. I oh, was right. talking to um, uh, author Una McCormick on a previous show yeah, yeah. about how uh, she grew up, you know, enjoying uh, all these same things—Doctor Who and Star Trek and Blake Seven—and now, you know, she gets to write Star Trek novels. And write uh, Blake Seven audio dramas, you know, and put words in the mouth of Avon. It's just like a like a weird, surreal experience for her.
1: It it really is. I mean, what's great is that we we do have this thing now where a lot of people are working on these properties. Are big fans. Um, Yeah. I mean, even like the showrunners, uh, Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat are just massive fans of the stuff. Mm -hmm. Going back way, way, you know, right right to the start, there they're they're both at the same age as me, so we sort of grew up you know, in completely different bits of the country, but we, we had that as a link. So, um, cause one of my other jobs is on the, the storyboard artist on the TV show, Dr. TV show.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we had an episode, well, it's a two parter at uh, the start of the season, a couple of years back, which featured the dialects really heavily. And I got to draw lots and lots of pictures of dialects. And then they put the dialects in the positions I'd drawn them. So <laughs> I like had the biggest toy set in the world. That's... and. Uh, <laughs> I bumped into Stephen Moffat in the reception of the BBC. He said, uh, he said uh, yeah, how's it going? Is it going well? And I went, you have basically made the seven-year-old me very, very happy, I said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for letting me play with the toys, yeah. Oh, yeah, was, yeah. Like you know, you wild. mentioned that you mentioned that they were uh, big fans, and I'm trying to imagine, I'm sure it happens in TV, but, like, who isn't a fan of Doctor Who that would end up working on Doctor Who? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if you just, I suppose, like, Back in the days of uh early Star Trek when you could just submit scripts uh as a as a potential screenwriter, maybe you would you had an LA Law spec script, you had a Star Trek spec script, and I guess it would be possible to write for these long running franchises without being a fan, but yeah, I mean you'd have to bring some of your love and just interest in this world to what you're what you're working on. I can't believe somebody would sit down and be like, Data, so what? He's got no emotions? Okay, uh just data's doing this. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, we, we. I think we saw that in Star Trek: Nemesis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we saw a screenwriter who was friends with the actor who played Data. So I yeah, think that's had what filled.
1: Phil... That no <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, right. Uh, still, first Dune Buggy and probably only Dune Buggy in the Star Trek universe. So okay. uh, I'd love to, as a comics fan myself, I'd love to pick your brain about your work for uh, Marvel UK and 2000 AD. But in the interest of time, we might have to save that for a future <laughs> okay. conversation. Uh, most listeners would probably be more familiar with your stateside work for Marvel and DC. Uh, yep. I have a near complete run of Uncanny X Men with a few glaring absences. One of those being Uncanny X Men Two Sixty Six, which features uh-huh. the full appearance of fan favorite Gambit. Yeah, I uh, I missed getting it when it first came out, and of course, when I went back to get it, it was a huge collector's item.
1: Well, it's it's coming out as one of those. Uh, what are they calling them? Not legacy or uh, like, a Beyond Marvel Marvel Masterworks? like Marvel Marvel or... Milestones. Yeah, in November, so you can get it with all the all the original adverts. So, <laughs> uh,
0: at a time or at that time in the late '80s and '90s, there's a lot of talent floating around the Marvel bullpen um, that people would just recognize as like world class: um, Jim Lee, uh, Mark Silvestri, Rick Leonardi. Uh, were you a regular on any books at that time, or were you doing like fill-ins for things like X-Men?
1: Well, it was a weird thing because actually, I've been working for DC Comics for like or oh, four or five years at that point. Um, yeah uh we had we used to have these big London conventions, comics conventions. It used to be the only convention we had each year. And DC sort of found out about the British artists because uh, Joe Staten, who'd been drawing uh, Green Lantern, had gone over to London and had met uh, Brian Bolland and stayed with Brian and his wife and sort of gotten really well. And he got Brian to do some uh, cover work for Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. And there was this like, moment of like, oh, there's artists over there. And so DC sort of sent over the talent scouts and sort of took a whole bunch of people back. And so DC had quite a big presence at a lot of those London shows. And I got picked up there. Uh, and I was doing superhero stuff for DC for a while. And then they got the rights to the TSR books. So lots of Dungeons & Dragons stuff. Sure, and, sure. Uh, because because I'd done uh, – there's a, there was a, a strip in 2000 called Slain because I'd yeah. drawn slaying, I sort of got on with that because I could do the, I could draw dragons, I could draw swords. So yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Fantasy. Yeah. Uh,
1: so I, I did the TSR stuff for a couple of years. And then I, I went to DC and just said, um, this is starting to wane. And as all things do, you know, things pass, um, can I do some superhero stuff? And they're going, I no, no, you're a sword and sorcery guy. I went, but I started doing superhero stuff for you. <laughs> um, yeah. You're a sword and sorcery guy. We, we, we know that. Um, and luckily Alan Davis, uh, who's been, uh it was like one of my oldest mates in the business had said to me, you know, so do you want to come work for Marvel? And I went, yeah. Um, and I did some spec work for them and I got to do uh it was a three part Submariner story mm. that ran in Marvel comics presents the, the weekly book. Yeah. Uh, because they, they just needed hot bodies. They just need people that could hold a pencil and fill in pages. <laughs> and, uh, Bob, Bob Harris had seen my pencils to that and said, um, to Terry Cavanaugh, who was the editor on that, said, do you think Mike might want to draw the X-Men? <laughs> and Terry phoned me up and said, I know the answer to this. <laughs> 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 do you want to draw the X-Men?
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and so I, I, I got to do a few issues of the X-Men, and I did. Well, I started off doing some uh, classic X-Men, the backup stuff. Um, yeah. So when when they got as far as the, the Dark Phoenix story, uh, Chris Claremont wrote this whole new, uh, like, uh, epilogue to the Dark Phoenix story, which I got to draw. Um, yeah. and then Bob Harris got me on the working on the regular book. Um, about the same time, DC were like, "Hey, you can draw superhero stuff. Do you want to come back to us?" <laughs> so sure. I, yeah, so I, <laughs> I ended up doing a, a, a few X Men things and a few other bits and pieces for Marvel, and then went back to DC and did superhero stuff for a while, and then um, that all then morphed into the uh, the Star Trek stuff, and I just bounced between the companies doing that then. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, and at that time, I mean, Star Trek is a fairly proven uh, franchise at the box office. But at that time, of course, there wasn't a lot of like success with um, regular uh, rank-and-file superhero movies uh, at the box office. That's totally changed now, of course. Oh, and yeah. it seems like all all action movies are just superhero movies now, uh, for, for good or bad. I wonder why they can't get a Gambit movie off the ground, though.
1: I think they got so far with it, but now that uh, Disney owns Fox, I think it, it's... Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Clearly out the window. What they're probably going to do is gradually introduce the X Men, maybe even singly. Um, so I think Wolverine will probably turn up first, inevitably. Um, but they'll they'll build it up as like a, a back burner thing, like they did with a few other properties. Sure, so that'd gradually, be you, you'll have that. You know that that will come together. So just I mean the, the way they or Kevin Feige did the Avengers uh-huh. was genius. Oh yeah, building up over several movies. It's like hang on. This is great. This is all the stuff that I, you know, grew up loving as a kid, and here it is on screen. And uh, by the time of Endgame, that the Marvel, uh, Marvel Avengers Endgame movie, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, that's how the comics used to look like in my head.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. The
1: lines on page, but in your head, you just bring the whole thing to life, and somehow they they scrape my brain and stuck it on a screen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for me like what what the success in the writing really comes down to them understanding the material and yeah. doing what any um what any great writer would do who's coming on to a book that's been you know literally around for 50 years is finding the familiar elements but finding the ways that they haven't been taking those ingredients and making some new recipe out of them and doing things that we've seen in the comics, but doing them in a fresh new way. But yet at the same time, leaving things there to reward like longtime fans. Like I always said to uh, my girlfriend years ago, that's like, she's like, is Cap going to die, you know, at the end of this sort of cycle. And I'm like, I'll tell you what, he's not going to die until he picks up Mjolnir. Just as a, as a comics fan, I know that uh, (laughs) they know that we're waiting to see Captain America, you know, pick up that hammer and show he's worthy. And yeah, we got moments like that all over Endgame.
1: Oh, Endgame, the, that moment in Endgame. Um, have you ever been in a, a cinema, in a, in a movie theater, where 800 people have nerdgasm at the same time? Yeah,
0: it sounds like a football <laughs> match. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was like,
0: ugh. oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's – okay. I mean, this is totally not Star Trek talk, so we should probably get back on the main path. But I hope to see a Gambit movie someday and see a uh, special thanks to Mike Collins uh, in the credits.
1: I was going to say that this is, this is one of the weird things is that um, the, the, the most reprinted comic book I did and the most valuable comic book I did, I actually drew in 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I, knock, I knock that out, and it's like, okay, it's done now. It's done. It's it's fine. I can go to the next thing. And it's like, Bob Harris is saying, you know, this character is me big. I'm going, yeah, okay. Um, but I, I, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs>
0: I'm not trying to hear that. I'm working on this uh, Teen Titans or or some other thing now. That was it. (laughs) Well, in addition to comics, uh, you've done a lot of work for television yourself, uh, as you mentioned, as a storyboard artist uh, for shows like Doctor Who and Good Omens, uh, Sherlock, Sex Education, and the upcoming His Dark Material series for HBO, which I want to ask a million questions about. I know you can't say a thing about it.
1: It's got polar bears in it.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. I suppose that's a a little bit of a spoiler there if you haven't read the books. Uh, When I think of storyboarding, (laughs) I tend to think of like film, you know, sketching out camera moves and action sequences. Uh, But when it comes to TV, I I associate storyboarding with animation or commercials. I mean, I can't see anybody storyboarding an episode of Cheers, for example. Uh, Is the more epic and cinematic nature of recent TV series leading to a greater need for storyboarding on TV?
1: Absolutely the case. And particularly in shows like Doctor Who, because... There's a lot of VFX. There's a lot of practical effects. Um, like there's certain episodes on Doctor Who where we have a lot of explosions. So uh, Danny Hargreaves is the guy that's, that blows everything up for BBC. He's, he's great at that. But the directors want to know that they can put the actors in a place where they don't get blown up. So I'll sit down with the director and we'll sort of work out how to uh, block out a scene. Um, the one show I worked on uh, for Amazon, uh, a show called Nightfall, which is about the Knights Templar. And that ended up getting filmed out in Prague. And one of the important things about having storyboards on that I mean, one, because you've got armies fighting, you've got you know, people with swords swinging all, all over the place. But because it was in Prague, most of the crew didn't speak English. So if I could sit down with the director and we could work out images, he could just show them, you know, uh, distribute them. Oh. So they knew how things were going to look.
0: Sure. And That's th- that interesting. was a Yeah,
1: you know, that, that, that cut through a lot of. Um, and this is going to happen. They go, what's going to happen? You know, it translates to three different languages. Right,
0: right, right. And for something like like Sherlock, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of information that's being communicated non-verbally um, yeah. with like on-screen text and Sherlock vision. You know, we see him computing and analyzing his environment. Is that part of your storyboards as well?
1: Uh, the, the the Sherlock I worked on was The Impossible Bride, the the one that was set in Victorian
0: times. Oh, right, right. Okay.
1: One of the things with the, the boarding I did on that was uh, mainly the Reichbach Falls sequence because you've got actors on a very narrow ledge. Yeah. Again, it's perfect stuff. So you've got to make sure that they're in the right places and you can map it all out so that it'll all work. Um, and I also did the the revised... You know, they did like a Victorian version of the credits. I did all the storyboards for that. Oh, cool. Because again, okay. image is going very, very quickly.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So uh, it, it's more that sort of stuff. Um, some shows like... Uh, well say his dark materials. I mean, you, you know the book, so you know that everybody in the story has like a, a, a familiar.
0: Yeah.
1: So you've got, you, we have to design shots in such a way that they you've got the actors and you've got where the CG stuff is going to be. at. The
0: same time, yeah. So. They're included. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so that, that that was quite fiddly.
0: Um, it's a whole new world on TV.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is.
0: I'm exercising a bit of Captain's prerogative today. Uh, when we initially contacted you about being on the show, uh, you suggested that we could talk about Discovery. And I immediately thought, we have to talk about magic to make the sanest man go mad. Everybody that I talk to says that that's their favorite uh, first season episode of Discovery. Why do you think that it got such a positive response from the fans?
1: It, I'll tell you why simply because it's the first episode that felt like a Star Trek episode mm. up to that point. I mean, I, I love discovery right from the off, but it was like this different beast because it was, um, serialized TV rather than episodic TV. Uh, it was dark, it was uncomfortable. And then suddenly this episode comes along and it's like, hang on what this feels like. It's something I remember. And I'm sure there's more of Alexander Courage's music in there as well than normally. Um, mm. And it, I mean, the, the whole setup of the, the thing where it's like, oh, you know, you've got to re- interact with the crew, and you've got the the, the sequence in the uh, the party, and everything. It's like, okay, this is people enjoying themselves on the show at last. <laughs> 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 uh, and what I what I like about the episode is the way it sort of calls back to various different things because it, it's not because cause and effect is one they always refer to because it's the same action repeats all through the yeah, story. Yeah when it starts off, if you don't know that it's a time travel episode, the first event in that story is finding this space whale and you think it's Ten Man from Next Generation. You yeah, think, yeah, oh, right. and then yeah. it suddenly flips. Within, you know, two scenes it's flipped. And you go, Hang on, what what's going on here? Who's this guy in the Donny Darko outfit? What's what's happening?
0: <laughs> yeah, taking those it's like the comic book movies, taking those elements that are familiar, but then trying to, you know, introduce them in new interesting ways.
1: And it wasn't until I watched it again today, uh, in in advance of uh, us talking, that I'd forgotten that the the music that's playing at the party is staying alive. (laughs) It's all about them dying continuously.
0: (laughs) Right, right, yeah. And it it itself is a a remix, because it's a uh, a 1990s rap version of the song, so it's a remix itself. I'm glad that we finally get to talk about Discovery on the podcast. This is the first time we've covered Discovery. As you can probably guess, we've covered a ton of TNG and DS9 and everything else. Um, I'm excited to finally get disco represented on the show to get a chance to dig into it as a series. And it stands at an interesting point in Trek history as the first new series on TV since the end of enterprise in 2005, it, you know, and, just you know, Discovery, it's an exciting, it's a well-made show. Um there's some fans, though, who aren't as receptive to a new addition to the Trek franchise. And as a Doctor Who fan, I'm sure you remember the dark times between the last seventh Doctor serial and the debut of the new series of Who in 2005. And I'm sure there's some Doctor Who diehards who didn't like the new franchise.
1: Oh, yeah, the people that were just completely turned off by it uh the, the idea that you've got well the, the companion i mean you know oh who should we pick for the new companion oh right. let's get let's, somebody that's had a couple of pop hits and you go why would you do that <laughs> yeah some people are like, really offended by it but billy piper is magnificent
0: oh she's great yeah uh, twitter had uh, actually started a year later in 2006 but if it had existed i'd i'm sure there'd be a not my who hashtag
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah and why is not the doctor got a silly outfit why is he dressed like a
0: Why is he in a jumper? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It's funny because my real introduction to, and I'm a huge uh, Who fan as well, uh, is uh, my introduction was the Fox movie, uh, the American TV movie. You know, I'd seen it on TV uh, as a kid, just knowing that it was a guy uh, in a scarf, you know, running from uh, from cardboard robots. But it wasn't until I was in, um, I think I was in high school or junior high, and that Fox movie came on, and this is in the early days of the internet, so. I kind of knew who the character was and it was called Dr. Who. So I actually had to go to like message boards and, you know, be like, "What what is this? Like, is this, is this the same thing as the guy with the scarf? And that's where uh-huh. I started to learn about the aspects of the character. And he has two hearts and he has a TARDIS and all this sort of thing. And that's, that's kind of how I got into it. So, you know, right. it, you could, you could jump on at any point.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just, it's something that comes in and changes the world. But yeah. because it needs changing.
0: (laughs) Because it needs changing, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think this is a pretty good jumping-on point for anybody who wants to get into Discovery. It's the episode Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. It first aired on October 29th of 2017. The episode was written by Aaron Eli Colliette and Jesse Alexander. Colliette is no stranger to superheroes. He was a writer and producer on the first season of Heroes on NBC. He'd also go on to write for Ultimate X-Men, at Marvel, he, and he was a producer on the first season of Discovery, and also wrote with Alexander the Discovery episode The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. So they like these uh, long titles. Uh, mm. Colliette also wrote the pilot episode for the upcoming Netflix adaptation of Lock and Key. Oh, wow. Uh, Jesse Alexander was also a writer and producer on Heroes, and he served as a producer on the ABC series Alias and also on Lost. He was the showrunner for the second season of the Star series American Gods, and he also wrote the 2009 comic one-shot Sergeant Fury and His Howling Commandos Shotgun Opera. Ooh. Did you guys get... You got all those 60s comics. Did you get uh, Sergeant Fury and His Howling Commandos in in the UK?
1: Yeah, we did. Uh, um, It wasn't a comic that bothered me that much because... One of the problems I have is growing up in Britain, a lot of the comics we got uh, in the 60s and 70s were all these war comics. Oh, yeah. Because, because we won the war. Right, honestly. right. <laughs> and I, I, I really, really hated war comics. So I, I missed out on reading Sergeant Rock. I missed out on reading Sergeant Fury because as far as I'm concerned, they were going to be exactly the same. And I've, I've, I've regretted it. And I've gone back and particularly Sergeant Rock. Oh, my God um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> brilliant scripts brilliant artwork and so I've, I've i've discovered them you know later on but uh yeah no so i i didn't read those i, I like the superhero stuff that's the thing that appealed to me in american comics
0: it's interesting too how you know it, like you said i mean it's set against the war but it's a superhero comic basically you know you've got fury yeah. in charge and then you've got gabe and everybody else and they all yeah. fill these roles you know in like this kind of super team but you guys got us back with james bond though like who really won the war here Uh, The episode was directed by David M. Barrett. Barrett is a prolific television director. He has the distinction of being the first director of a prior Star Trek show to work on Discovery. He previously directed the Star Trek Enterprise episode Divergence. The star date for this episode is 2136.8 and it goes to 2137.2 which is a little strange because the pilot of TOS, Where No Man Go- Has Gone Before, takes place nine years after this episode, but its star date is given as 1312.4. Uh, and adding to the confusion, the episode after this, Siviv Pakam Parabolum, takes place on star date 1308.9. So time is very important in this episode, and of course <laughs> we relive the same day over and over again many times, but I wonder why there's this sort of strange um variants in what the star date is uh, i don't know if it's a mistake or it's a commentary on something
1: i strongly suspect they wrote the numbers down as holding patterns and nobody changed it,
0: <laughs> uh, it just yeah i often wonder i mean that's clearly how it was done uh on, on the original series just what is it again uh just four numbers that's fine
1: in the david Gerro book about making star trek the original series there's a whole bit on that how they just go through and they're uh, brass it out on uh, how the dates work. Because so, yeah. well, there are different parts of the universe and time moves slightly differently and obviously sure. when the curve curve of the universe is this way the date's actually here and it's like, what? <laughs>
0: okay, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're going clockwise or, or anti-clockwise around the galaxy. Uh, my friend author Dave Gallanter says, uh, for a TV show, Star Trek is a terrible documentary. <laughs> well, your assignment, Mike, if you, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of magic to make the sanest man go mad.
1: 25 word synopsis okay
0: it's not gonna be 25 words
1: uh (laughs) uh, it's a show where characters get to find out things about themselves and then forget them repeatedly but still (laughs) manage to develop as characters that's absolutely yeah
0: that's what it is and if i just repeat that Uh, in the uh, loop here uh, 25 times. I think that'll probably give people the idea. Uh, That's very succinct, and it focuses on character and not plot, and I think that's great. Here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. The title of the episode comes from a passage in the Iliad, book 14 of the Iliad. It's a reference to the girdle or band of Aphrodite, which possesses the titular magic to make the sanest man go mad. Uh, In the story, Aphrodite gives it to Hera to aid in her seducing Zeus as a distraction, so Poseidon and the other gods can aid the Greeks in their war against the Trojans. This is actually the first episode of Star Trek since Encounter at Farpoint that doesn't have a teaser scene. It just starts with a previously on, and the following episode, Parab- Bellum uh, also has no teaser. And that's something that um, I think is fine in storytelling. You know, it's okay to break with tradition. I think they're still kind of finding their way in the new world of streaming. I think it's interesting that they leave commercial breaks in Uh, Of course, they're – depending on what – where you're seeing it, you know, or or what kind of um, subscription you have to CBS All Access, you may be seeing commercials. But the – and the length of episodes vary greatly as well. Um, They can be 35 minutes and they can go to over an hour, which is a little jarring when you've been watching Star Trek, you know, for for years and years and it's been kind of the same way. Um, What do you think? Uh, You haven't worked on – Star Trek is a storyboard artist, have you?
1: No, no, I haven't. No. A friend of mine, uh, Rob McCallum, does. Oh. So we we, we we swap storyboarding stories.
0: <laughs> sure. So does it start then at the script? Like when they come to you, uh, are they just giving you a script and it's X amount of pages? Or in the storyboarding process, or do you get to the point where it's like, well, clearly this is going to be more than your usual, like 42, 44 minutes?
1: You, you tend to get... Um, you get a draft of the script and, uh, and at that point with, with all TV scripts, it's probably the third or fourth draft. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, uh, uh,
1: what I, what I tend to do, and I think Rob does as well, you sit down with the director and the director goes, okay, I need this, this, and this storyboard because again, it's because of effects or what have you. Yeah. Um, and then you break it all down and see how this is going to work in such a way. And what I found with my storyboards is, uh, even on a, a weekly show like Dr. Who is, uh, my artwork will actually change because of the needs of the director. So even though I'm the guy drawing it, I am my job there is to realize the vision of the director. Sure. So so uh, Rachel Talali, who I've worked with quite a bit on um, Doctor Who, the way she approaches things is differently to, say, the way um, Douglas McKinnon who I work with on Doctor Who and on um, Good Omens, they have different approaches. Um, you, you can end up having... Saying like three hours in a meeting with the director, and you block everything out, or you can have like five minutes, and yeah, go away and draw that. Okay, <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> and it's it's like oh okay, um, interesting. So it, and it's, it's it's your job then to realise what it is the director wants. Um, what what's interesting is things can actually change because of the storyboards. Uh, uh, I mean, we, we're going back to Doctor Who now. We're sort of straying off what we're supposed to be talking about. That's okay. But on on. Um, Flatline, the Doctor Who story where the TARDIS is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking.
0: I love that episode.
1: Yeah. Well, originally, the the scene where the hand comes out the TARDIS and walks along is like (laughs) um, just a couple of beats. But they saw my boards and went, do you know what? This is going to be great. So they rewrote it. So there's like a longer, longer sequence of that. So, you know, becomes cousin hits just
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean it's a collaboration uh, i was listening to a uh, a podcast uh, where another storyboard artist who was talking about their process and talking about diff- working with different directors and different productions and doing a marvel movie and you know the script coming in and revisions coming in and doing it one way and then finding out oh we can have this hero we didn't know that we could have and so of course you know a rainbow color uh of script page colors is coming through oh yeah and then they also worked on something with the cohen brothers and uh and they work with them frequently and they said i think i got a yellow script page once 15 years ago <laughs> like they come in knowing exactly what they're going to get exactly the way it's going to be done and then that's the way it happened
1: it, it, it is all different um on i lose tracks it's series nine or series ten of series nine of doctor who uh where we it was the end of the um the Clara, uh, Clara Oswald storyline mm-hmm. um there's uh, the last one episode the, the one where the doctor the doctor again he's reliving time again and again so it, it, right. it's, it's actually pertinent to this um <laughs> I was only getting like uh three or four pages at a time of script because uh because Steve Moffat was writing it and it was the producer yeah uh you know he was sort of heavily involved in stuff so I was getting it like this chapter play. So I'd be storyboarding stuff and not knowing what's going to happen next. And I go, oh wow, you know, like calling at the production office, can I get more pages? Get more pages? Yeah, well, you have to wait. <laughs> sure. like no,
0: Get it on a subscription yeah, plan. It's, that, that
1: yeah, plot a the plot, repeated the same sequence. So
0: yeah. Well, that's our excuse then. Uh, Mud's, bunny, <laughs> Mud's bunny helmet in the episode is uh, an Andorian design, which makes sense. It was inspired by the Orion who was disguised as an Andorian in the TOS episode Journey to Babel. Uh, they also wanted an anime look for it, and I think they achieved that. Despite the storytelling ambitions and effects present in the episode, uh, it was actually conceived as a bottle show. That is an episode that uses existing sets in an effort to save money. And I understand the sets and I understand like casting um, guest actors, but there are so many effects in this episode. I can't imagine they saved that much money.
1: No, I, I, I can't. I can't say that at all. And it's interesting about the making. Mean, the thing for me, as soon as um, mud comes out wearing that outfit, the first thing I thought of was Donnie Darko,
0: which yeah. is again,
1: a story about repeated re- times.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's, it, this episode is chock full of those, uh, of those references. Well, despite the uh, money that they saved uh, and the effects, when it comes to practical actors, of course uh, you have to do the work. And the party scene was very time intensive and took four days to film. Oh. Uh, which is interesting for, you know, just having like, Two or three scenes, basically. Two or three setups. Um, this is also the first Discovery episode in which no Klingons appear on screen. Uh, Discovery, yeah. as a series, has had no apprehension about featuring modern music, that is, 20th and 21st century cultural references. And two 20th century songs feature in the party scene, specifically, We Trying to Stay Alive by Wyclef Jean and the Refugee mm-hmm. All-Stars, which samples Stay Alive, of course, by the Bee Gees. And also it includes Love and Happiness by the Reverend Al Green. Yep, And just a little bit of time travel loop accounting, uh, Mud kills Captain Lorca and presumably the entire crew of Discovery at least 56 times in this episode. Uh, Based on that number, Discovery would experience 28 hours of elapsed time in its repeating loops. That's always sort of the dark side of second chances in repeating loops. They go through that also in cause and effect on TNG where they calculate that they've been in the loop for like 17 days or something like that. Yeah. Uh, this episode was nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form, but it would lose to The Good Place episode, The Trolley Problem, which oh. that's no shame in that. That's a great episode. Oh, too. no, it's
1: cool. Oh, I love The Good Place.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about some of the guest stars in this episode. Catherine Burrell plays Stella Grimes. Catherine Burrell is the first actress to portray Stella Mudd on screen. Uh, Kay Elliott plays her in I Mud, but that was, of course, a series of androids. Who, let's face it, were somewhat spitefully, I think, designed and built by Harry Mudd. (laughs) At this point in his life, he's got a negative uh, opinion, I think, of Stella. Uh, Beryl is also a series regular on the series Working Moms and Winona Earp. Uh, Peter McNeil appears as Baron Grimes, the father of Stella. He's had a long career in television and film since his start in the 70s and has appeared in such films like Crash, Dog Park and History of Violence. He's also had many TV roles and he was a series regular on the U.S. version of the British show Queer as Folk uh, from Russell T. Davies and the Uh Canadian series Cats and Dog and Call Me Fitz. And he appeared in the 1990 movie uh, Stella starring Bette Midler. Random fact there. Uh, I want to point out a uh, random communication officer man <laughs> who is not appearing for the first time in this episode. Of course, he's played by Ronnie Rowe Jr. and his character's name is R.A. Bryce. Uh, but this is the first time that he is sort of called out uh, on the screen. Um, and I thought it was interesting that in the, it's definitely in the second season of Discovery. They're definitely trying to introduce us now more to the bridge crew. Um, I don't know if it's just a factor of, okay, we're, we've are we been renewed, we're on now for a second season. This isn't all about Michael Burnham and like the war with the Klingons. But I've seen a lot of fans and myself included be really excited about that because when you think about Star Trek, sure, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy uh, are the are the focus, but I love the Chekhov moments. I love when Sulu's doing something. You know, I love when Uhura gets to do something. And getting that on Discovery has been really great.
1: I kind of see what they were going for in the first series. In the first series, they were saying, you know, this is a a, a tight crew. You've got this really sort of hard-ass captain, and he just runs this ship like a machine. And the thing is, if you're in that situation, you wouldn't refer to each other by your names because you all know who you are. You're just doing your job, and that's it. You know, if you get shouted at, he's shouting out to you because of what your job is. So first series, right, you don't know who anybody's name is. Um, and I, I love the moment in series two where Pike goes on the bridge and just goes, who are you? And he goes, Coms, no, what's your name?
0: <laughs> yeah. What's your name? What's your name? And
1: what's your name? And, what's your name? Like, yes. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. A little bit of uh, uh, of personnel accounting there uh, for him and for the audience as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Uh, fun fact, when Discovery's U- Universal Translator malfunctions in the season two episode in Obel for Karen, Bryce was heard speaking Welsh.
1: Yep. That was a, I, I, that threw me completely. Hang on, what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, I know that you worked on uh, Mabinogi, the first uh, Welsh language graphic novel, but are you, are you fluent in Welsh? I can order beer. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh, hey, that's fluent <laughs> that's, enough.
1: Yeah. Fluent no, uh, my, my daughter's good to speak Welsh because they've, they've sort of grown up, um, and my, my eldest daughter actually is a, a primary school teacher, so she teaches little kids, and oh. quite often, because of, uh, Cardiff is mostly English. But uh, if you go into the valleys and you go into uh, mid-Wales, then Welsh is the first language. Okay. So she okay. sort of uh, – and her, her husband actually is a, a native Welsh speaker as well. So um, it, it's there, and I can follow it a bit. Um, but speaking it, it's it's. – I've got one of those minds that sort of uh, is binary. So if I'm speaking English, I'm <laughs> sure. speaking English. If I'm speaking foreign, I'm speaking French. Sure. So I, I, hey, I, I did a, a course in – um, sort of learning. I've done it a few times. Trying to learn Welsh, and I get so far along with it, and the moment I'm, under pressure, I will start gabbling, and they go, oh, "You are speaking French." <laughs> 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 but, but that's foreign. That's is that fine? Yes.
0: <laughs> You've got like one drawer in your brain for a foreign language, yeah, and yeah, we got to take French same. out of there. You- yeah. Uh, Rain Wilson, of course, appears as Harcourt Fenton Mudd in this episode, and he should need no introduction as the man behind uh, Dwight Schrute, the role he played for nine seasons on the American version of The Office. It's a role that he received three Emmy nominations for. Wilson has had many TV and film and voice roles in his career. Uh, His first film role was that of senior Thermian requisition officer Lonk in 1999's Galaxy Quest. Oh, wow. And I was thinking Never Give Up, Never Surrender could also be in the Starfleet Charter. Yeah. Except it's uh, it's a bit of a tautology. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the episode proper here. Um, we have, of course, been through the reboot before uh, in other Star Trek episodes uh, that we mentioned before, like Cause and Effect. Um, and so other than just trying to connect to an earlier audience uh, and also trying to save money, I wonder what made them try to decide to do this, like right in the middle of this Brand new um, series. that's a bit of a gamble on streaming TV. Uh, they just stopped the whole thing just to do this one sort of character based episode with a time loop.
1: I, I, th- I think it's down to the character part. I think they, they wanted to advance the relationship. Uh, and if you've got this sort of hell for leather, grim, gritty war story going on, <laughs> then you, you can't really do that. You need like a pause. And by creating that device where um they could keep meeting up again and it's it's almost like their relationship develops even though it's the same 30 minutes repeated yeah i I quite like that i think that's that's quite a nice sort of device that just it's echoes of something else as well and it'll come back to me it hasn't come back to me yet where the same sort of thing happens um of course it's a bit of yesterday's enterprise in there as well yeah because the whole thing that that the gyne and role in this one is stamets so He's the one that is out of time and knows that things are changing, and that's that's quite funny in itself as well because of that whole bit where you know tell me something that you wouldn't tell anybody else and nobody else would know so that next time I see you I can say this. So I, I like I like that about it. it it's just a, it's a puzzle box thing, and Star Trek yeah. likes puzzle boxes. Ship in a bottle, the you know the Moriarty episode. Yeah, the, it, it's all about solving things, and by creating this a deliberately artificial environment. You actually create something quite sweet and lasting for the characters.
0: Yeah, it's sort of putting your characters, you know, in this sort of crucible, and that's different than their normal circumstances. And then, and then, kind of seeing um, what comes out of them. And it, like thematically, I really like the fact that. Well, well first of all, <clears throat> I like the fact that we've introduced, you know, in earlier episodes, this idea of. Uh, Stamets getting this um, this magical uh, space tardigrade uh, DNA inserted yeah. into him, and so that makes him gives him an awareness um, beyond uh, like a normal person existing in that time period. I feel like some depending on like what. Series You're looking at like the doctor sometimes has this if there's a paradox or there's something wrong with time. Mm. Everybody else is going about their lives, but the doctor sort of stands apart and outside of that. And he's like, wait a minute, I know something's wrong here. We have to we have to fix what's wrong. And so we start with Stamets as kind of the missing piece, though the way that this episode starts, you know, Burnham is talking on her log and she's talking about how she's settling into the routine of the ship And part of it is that that's good because she's integrating now because she was, you know, an outcast before, but it also sort of suggests that she feels sort of locked into this and that, you know, she's met this guy that she likes and she's starting to get acceptance and friends. But how am I going to get past my history as Michael Burnham, the first mutineer in uh, Starfleet? And the answer is... A spaceship stuck inside of a whale and a guy with a time crystal <laughs> in a Donnie Darko yep. costume uh, and then run that about 300 times. And then that's how we're going to uh, get through this here.
1: It's, it's like what Buffer used to do where they'd have a musical <laughs> episode that actually advanced the story, even though in, its, in itself it was a standalone episode. You couldn't progress through that series without watching that episode. It was absolutely crucial to the over, over- overarching story.
0: Yeah, there's an episode of, um, I'm going to get in trouble because I always bring up uh, the TV series Farscape on my Star Trek uh, show, Uh, but there's an episode called The Locket, where the crew uh, gets trapped. They go to this planet, and it's an interstellar situation, like the planet has higher gravity so that time moves faster there, and they basically get caught on this planet, and they live out their lives until they're old people, and Mm -hmm. characters on the crew who have just met each other now have known each other their entire lives and their relationships develop in a certain way. And there's a timey-wimey science fiction fix where they all finally get back on the ship at the end and all that never happened. But it still kind of shows us, it kind of plots out where we're going to go. It kind of gives, lets us look at the menu without serving us just yet. And that's just a great device. And it's a device that you can really only use in sci-fi.
1: Yeah, and there's the, the Enterprise episode as well, isn't there? Twilight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you've got uh, Archer older and sort of stranded on the planet and everything. So after the Earth's been destroyed, the, the Xantius. Dis- I'm. You know, it's several years since I've watched it, and it's a bit of it coming together in my head. Sure. But sure. it is that sort of scene where again, you, you, you're sort of developing this story that isn't actually part of the, the, the bigger story, but it ends up informing those character on those characters characters later. The characters, characters. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not sure which I like more um the idea that it all resets but there's some peace there still um uh, that they remember you know thanks to Stamets or whoever or that they that they never really do like the way that uh yesterday's enterprise happens um there's this sturm and drang and there's this war and there're these great sacrifices and pathos and then they fly the enterprise see through the thing and then suddenly it's like what was that oh we just saw a little blip on the scanner okay we'll keep flying so what were yeah. you telling me about your uh, weekend and riser? Well, like they forget all about this yeah. amazing thing that happened. It's sort of tragic, but it's,
1: yeah. And then when Tashia's daughter turns up, it's like, well,
0: <laughs> yeah. Then it all comes out in the wash. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also like that the titular magic in this episode is, is love really. Like it's love in uh, the Iliad or at least lust. Uh, and it is kind of love in this, like love and this secret, um, that pain that, uh, that Burnham is in hiding—that she shares with Stamets—is uh, kind of the answer. Like being open is the answer, and and you know, all Mud wants to do is destroy and and just wreathe. And the fact that this emotionless woman who is trying to deal with that does harbor this 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 desire to be loved, like that's what gets them out of it. You know, it's, it's it's the complete opposite of like Interstellar, for instance. Interstellar plays the subtext. A character tells you love is the most powerful thing in the universe. And then we see, you know, Matthew McConaughey save humanity with love. But it's just this sort of giving up this uh, almost Greek sacrifice of sort of sacrificing something and then that allowing, um, you know, the God to come down and uh, save us all.
1: Yeah, but the, and interestingly enough, sort of following on from what you're saying there, You've actually got the reverse of that in Mud's vocalized justification for what he's doing. Right. The bit about, you know, oh, uh, this woman that I love. <laughs> yes. And that whole thing is just a complete ploy. And then
0: <laughs> and he won't shut up about it. Yeah. At the end of it. so Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great that's a great inversion there. Um, yeah. Star Trek loves. I mean, Star Trek might have had more uh, time travel than Doctor Who. Star Trek loves using time travel. <laughs> Uh, yeah. sometimes a little too much, I think. Um, what do you think about the use of time travel in non-Doctor Who sci-fi? Uh, do you think that it's gets overused, or you think that it can be used uh, judiciously, to, like just at the right time?
1: At the right time, yeah. <laughs> um, well, there you go. Yeah, uh, it's, it's funny, because uh, Deep Space Nine is now on Netflix over here, and I've been mm-hmm. dipping into it, um, just thinking, oh, I remember that episode, whatever. And I, I watched about seven or eight episodes out of sequence, I suddenly thought, I've watched all the time travel episodes. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> it's
1: like, okay. So I, I've done past tense and I've done um, uh, trials and tribulations. And yeah. uh, I was uh, going through, I was, I, hang on, you know, and the little green men and everything. And it's just yeah. like, yeah, those are the ones I picked out because I, I start, it, it, uh, you say it, absolutely right, it's a major part of Star Trek. Time travel is such a big part of all those stories. And like the most popular Star Trek movie is still Star Trek Four, where they go back and save the whales. That's right. And of course the, First contact, they go back and they meet um you know they meet the the Vulcans for the first time. So
0: and it you know, and the character parts are the best part of that too, like seeing that Zephyr Cochran wasn't this gigantic hero that we imagine him yeah. to be. It's he's got feet of clay and he's just a normal person.
1: Yep. Although how that Zephyr Cochran becomes the one that they meet in original series, I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, the DS9 episode uh, that I think of is Children of Time. Uh, That's sort of similar to this. And when they um, go to the planet, you know, with the descendants of the Defiant crew. And it's that same sort of sacrifice where (laughs) I love their decision because you'd think, all right, we kind of know what's going to happen. Like in an episode like this, you can't have this go on. We know TV has contracts. And so these uh, characters aren't going anywhere. And there's no way we can have a planet that has... 200 years of descendants of the Defiant crew. So they're going to disappear somehow. But at the end of that episode, the Starfleet crew members decide, we can't let these people die. Like, this is what Starfleet is all about. If this ruins our lives, it doesn't matter. Like, this is the mission of Starfleet. So they're going to go along with it. But um, I can't remember what happens. I think the Odo of their time, like, sabotages it or something like that. So they get sent back against their will. But it's that same thing where you get to see how things could progress and probably will progress. And then also you get this sense of sacrifice and loss.
1: And there's, uh, there's I must estimate Voyager is still, I think the weakest series, mm. but the episode where you've got the two versions of Voyager and yeah. all the way through, you're like, all the way through, you're like, there's one that's getting, uh, smashed to pieces and everybody's bleeding and there's fires everywhere. And there's one where it's like, just as you always see Voyager, which looks like a, like a mid price hotel with a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's like, but that's the one that dies, and the one that's all messed up comes, you know, yeah, comes
0: yeah, out as being,
1: comes out as being ours. Like, wow, that's that was a that was thought that was a really bold choice on their part there. Um, yeah, I think my favourite of the time travel stories on DS Nine is still a visitor. Oh, Seeing true. Jake growing older, I I just love that because he's still got that there. It's it's still part of his life afterwards. So.
0: Harry Mudd, uh, of course, is in this episode. It was, I think, probably a, a no-brainer choice when you're rooting around in this era of Trek, looking for familiar characters that you can bring in. Um, but they could have done it a lot worse, I think. I really enjoy this version of Mudd, and I think that Rain Wilson... Was when you watch a guy when you watch him play uh, Dwight on The Office, you don't think that he's going to bring this sort of operatic, uh, hardcore Fenton Mud to the screen of Discovery. Oh, no, but I, he really does. I, I was really
1: surprised when they said he was cast when they cast him as murders. Really, that yeah. doesn't. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> which which is the best kind of bear, a water bear.
1: Yeah, I love the short trek that he did. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, could have watched two hours of that. <laughs>
0: And it's fun to see. I love it when they bring a character. Like I think James Frain is is killing it as Sarek, but you can really yeah. see uh, his. Uh, you can see Leonard Sarek in his Sarek. I love it when they bring a character on earlier, and you go, "How does this guy become that guy?" Um, oh. Because I think you could definitely see it happen. But this mud is different. He, this mud's got a little gravel in it. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a, he's a different kind of person. Uh, he's not the sort of petty criminal that we see uh, later on. And you can get into the ethics of time travel, I think, as well, in that he commits, oh boy, 5,000 conservatively murders over the course <laughs> of all these loops. And of course, the last, uh, maybe he, maybe his thing is, we learn that he has done this before uh, when he robbed a Beta Z bank. And they theorize that he must have had a time crystal. That's how he was able to learn the pattern. And we see that cool thing that you see um, in like Groundhog Day, for instance, uh, where he just knows everything that's going to happen in this deterministic way. And that allows him to, of yeah. course, sneak in perfectly. So maybe he's committing these murders and he's not like a total psychopath. He knows once he gets it exactly right, nobody has to die and he can get the best of Lorca and see that look on his face as he you know, flies away. Yeah, I'm hoping. Otherwise, this guy's a terrible person.
1: No, it, it creates a very interesting sort of philosophical thing, doesn't it? That if if they're going to come back, have they really died? Have is I really killed anybody? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. They say he's mad, but he says, of course, he's mud. Yeah. I also really liked. <laughs> I, I also really like the idea of the um, which is I love space fauna, and I think that we don't get enough space fauna uh, in Star Trek.
1: No, no, no. Like I say, Tin Man—that's the first thing I thought of when.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. sure
1: that that's what I wanted you to think as well. The idea of yeah. flying
0: whale, space whale. Yeah, um, I hope that they, um, I hope that they return someday. Yeah, I like the party scene in the episode. I've heard that I've heard some people complain that it's too modern. You know, they've they've got solo cups and they're playing beer pong. You know, and have rap music. But all the parties on TNG and DS9 are them eating cake and Riker's playing the trombone or, or something. Like yeah. they seem so stuffy. So it's nice to see that humans in the mid twenty third century uh, know how to get down still.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, Russell T. Davis was very clear about when he was doing Doctor Who. Really? Uh, he wanted things to be accessible to a contemporary audience. I mean, wh- what he said is, okay, you're watching this, but what is it? You're seeing it on your terms. That, uh, Like in this story, you know those songs that they're listening to, but those aren't the songs that they would be listening to. It's mm-hmm. actually treating it as... This is a version that it's like this is a translation rather than trying to do space music, which is always
0: disastrous. <laughs> Never works, yeah, except for uh, yeah. the cantina scene in, in uh, Star Wars,
1: yeah. But even that's like <laughs> like, like jazz, <laughs>
0: yeah, it's basically jazz, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's that's the thing. And, and Russell's uh, I, I, I was you know completely on board with what he did. So now you, you've always got to be able to accept that these are things that you can recognize, they, they you wouldn't necessarily recognize things at that point in history, but. That being said, um, like in Britain, we still have people playing music from 500 years ago. Well, yeah. You know, a lot of British folk music goes back well, way, way back, and it still gets played today. Um, so maybe there's something to it. Uh, you think about American country music, that comes a lot from Irish folk music. There's a lot to that. Yeah. So th- maybe it wouldn't be that different, but probably it would. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, also, you know, it's a party, so they need a real a real banger for for the party. Yeah. Like they could play some old English lute music, but it wouldn't uh, necessarily be what they yeah, want to dance not. to. Sure. Yeah. I love in that Doctor Who episode, uh I think it's called The End of the World where they um want to commemorate the destruction of the Earth, so they're going to play a classic uh, Earth song and it's yep. uh, Toxic by Britney Spears. So Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, the thing about the party sequence at the start and as it bounces through it that seems to be a lot of handheld camera in that as well it's, it''s suddenly it's like, "Whoa, I'm watching star Trek, but this is this is a lot more naturalistic, and it's like, oh, okay, so so it takes you by surprise a little bit, yeah, because you used a lot formal setups of for shots, and then later on, obviously, when we get into the action, we go back to the framing that we used to.
0: I was going to ask you uh, as we get near the end of the show here, you'd mentioned before Picard, uh, I wanted to know what you thought about the idea of Picard and some of the shows that are coming up for Star Trek like section thirty one and Lower decks.
1: Picard is just a... Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thumbs just, up. I, 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 I just heard, you know, when, when they said, oh, we're going to do a series with Picard, I thought, oh, really? I Because he's going to be on his own, or is it some of the crew going to be back, and is it going to be one of these sort of, like, reunion shows, and it going to be nostalgia? Uh, I wasn't sure, and then that trailer. Oh, my God, I don't know how many times I've watched that trailer.
0: yeah
1: There's so many beats in that. Watching things about it, thinking, uh, I've got theories about when we see data in there that this there's, there's issues about that, and mm-hmm. that they haven't addressed yet. And you can see though there's a through line to it, and you can see Patrick Stewart like acting his age. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He's not trying to be the the young hero. He's not trying to be the you know sort of a, this is somebody that's gone through a lot in his life, and you know, yeah. a certain point things have been so bad that he just stepped away, and now you yeah. call back in it. You know, it, it's it looks fantastic. <laughs> it really does.
0: I was I think I've said this on the show before, but one of the things that it just seems like a no brainer and I'm glad that they did is that sure it's a sequel series to t n g in a way in that it has and stars uh John luc Picard, but it's the first look that we're getting it's the first f- vision of the future, the future of the future that we're seeing yeah. so it's really a sequel series to Everything Voyager DS9, everything from that time, and it looks like they're leaning into that because, of course, we've seen Seven of Nine, and I'm sure we'll see other familiar things revisiting that world.
1: Rob Picardo's turning up in, isn't he? He said he's in it, so that's, top, yeah, that's
0: what we've heard. Mm-hmm. That that'd be great. Um, another show that is not going to be revisiting a world; it's going to be going in a whole new direction is Section Thirty-One. Uh, what do you think about the idea of a Section Thirty-One show? Starring uh, Mirror Giorgio.
1: She's just wonderful. (laughs) She's (laughs) so fantastic. (laughs) She's great. But isn't she... But the thing is, isn't she on Discovery when it goes to the future?
0: I thought that too. Um, So clearly, uh, either she found a way off or, yeah, we're going to have to deal with her finding a way back. You know, she is the devious Mira Giorgio, so I just figure she's got a time crystal in her back pocket. She just hops in that angel thing, and she's like, good luck, guys, just heads back to the 23rd century.
1: I- I'd loved if they'd done it with Bashir, though. That would have been...
0: <laughs> sure.
1: You know, I could have I watched a series of that. Uh, yeah. Alexander City's secret agent, Julian Bashir.
0: With the success of... Uh, I'm just assuming the excess uh, success of Picard, uh, there's no reason that they just couldn't greenlight another sequel series, which is like an older Bashir, maybe oh, as old as he is, or age him up a little. And he's, um, you know, the spy man, he, it's the George Smiley version of uh, of Bashir. Oh. And so he's recounting yeah. all of his exploits as a younger Bashir, uh, you know, played by a different actor, uh, doing all these section 31 things.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, I got to cut that out. I'm going to, I'm going to pitch that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, There's the the cartoon as well, isn't the lower decks one? Yeah, that, yeah, that looks interesting. I'm up for that. I've only seen like model sheets, so I'm intrigued to see how it, how it works as a show.
0: Yeah, I'm up for something that is just uh, just spitballing. You know, it has no uh, legacy to maintain. I just can't imagine the pressure on people like Michael Shaben and the writers on the uh-huh. card. Uh, but it's just like let's just riff. Let's just see what where we can go. Star Wars has been very good at this. Doing like comedic versions of, you know, Twilights and stuff on Robot Chicken, just taking this established yeah. world and just spinning out something fun. And so I'm glad that Star Trek's finally getting a chance to do that officially. Yeah. As we get to the very end here, is there anything that there's left unsaid about the episode uh, that you wanted to mention still?
1: How much fun Jason Isaacs has in this episode? <laughs>
0: <Yes>. Dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love how we really see. You know, at this time, we didn't know if he was a good guy or a bad guy, but we definitely know that he is not a a details guy. So I love when they're talking about the whale and he's just like, yeah, I don't care. Have fun. Just go take care of the whale. Whatever.
1: (laughs) Uh, The the many deaths of.
0: uh, Yeah, some some shocking, (laughs) shocking deaths too. that sequence. Oh, speaking of storyboarding, that sequence where Mud really goes into overdrive and we get like the succession of kills, you know, where he's just sort of killing him, turning around same mud, but new sort of setting and then killing him in some other terrible way was uh, greatly choreographed.
1: You, you you, really have to get Rob McCallum on and ask him about
0: it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I will do. Let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why?
1: Uh, it's going to be Kirk because he was there first. <laughs> sure. Although, do you know what? Uh, Pike played by Anson Mount might be edging him. I just thought that was a tour de force. Playing a character that, you know, that had been around for like two episodes or a two-parter and just making it his own. I just thought he did a fantastic job.
0: Yeah, and certainly I, I love how, you know, in a second season of a show that started with seeing an evil captain, seeing a main character who had made a mistake and sort of forgotten the ideals of Starfleet, like positioning Pike as just... The mold, you know, just the yeah. the guy that comes off the production line when you're going to make a Starfleet officer. Yeah, I thought that was really great. Yeah. Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you receive a commission and the rank of ensign in our Starfleet. What department on the ship do you work in?
1: Probably the kitchens because it's the easiest job of the lot. You just press a button. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, depending on uh, what century you're in, I think you have to mix the potatoes <laughs> still if you're in the 23rd century. But yeah, it yep. certainly gets a lot easier as we move to the 24th century.
1: Yeah,
0: I always like the emphasis on real food and Enterprise, too. Like, they always have a scene where they're eating in the uh, captain's mess and they're eating uh, yeah. spaghetti and meatballs or something like that. <laughs> well, Ensign Collins, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek in the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individual's Facebook page, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, where... My, my Twitter tends to sort of vary between comics, politics, and cat videos.
0: That just sounds like a Twitter account to me. <laughs> my,
1: young, my youngest daughter refuses to let me go on Twitter. If I do anything political, I have to follow it with a cat video. So uh, okay. you, know, right. you know things about me, Brexit, when lots of cat videos turn up.
0: <laughs> good balance. That's a good balance then, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to remind remind listeners that we have a separate podcast about Star Trek Discovery called Discoverage, where I and my co-host Ella Pearson discuss every episode of Star Trek Discovery immediately after it airs on CBS All Access. We go live just minutes after the episode debuts, and we talk with special guests about that night's episode. You can find that show on our usual show show feed or find out more by going to enterprisingindividuals.com. Mike, do you have any work coming up that listeners should keep an eye out for?
1: Well, his dark materials... Um been a real pleasure boarding that and obviously the next series of Doctor Who yeah um, both have been great fun uh, his dark materials has been amazing because it's it's a book I'd read years ago so I had images in my head of how it should look um, the, that movie that came out about 10 years ago was okay but didn't quite capture it but the TV show is really good um, it's a fantastic piece of work uh, in terms of comics work and it sort of ties in a bit to everything else we have been talking about um I've got a a graphic novel out at the moment, which is about the first moon landing called Apollo. Uh, It's written by Chris Baker and Matt Fitch, and they have done a fantastic script on that. They they actually came up to me at a comics convention in London, and they said, um, can you give us some advice on – can you read our script and give us some feedback? Because we're trying to sell this as a story. We're trying to get publisher interested in in it. And uh, I sat down and read the script. I went, guys (laughs) – I'm drawing this.
0: <laughs> uh, Here's your feedback. You need an artist. Yeah. Me.
1: <laughs> it, it's brilliant because it, it manages to do that. They the, and it's them. You know, it, it's heavily researched and it tells the uh, the Apollo Eleven mission from uh, blast off to Splashdown. But what they do, which I think is fantastic, is they manage to get in the lives of the astronauts they managed to get uh, america at the time so nixon's quite a major character in the story there's um, the sequences of the vietnam war there's just like you know the, the, there's bits that make it feel like it, it was it was an event it wasn't just three guys in a can going off somewhere um so uh, neil armstrong's life was filled with tragedy uh buzz aldrin's life he had an overbearing father and that's a big part of the story uh, my namesake, Mike Collins, um, sure. is this really happy-go-lucky guy that basically <laughs> just enjoys himself. He paints; he's happy. And they were trying <laughs> to come up with that has to be a beat for all because three characters. There has to be a beat for all the characters. And I said, well, you know, at a certain point, Mike Collins is on his own in uh, the Columbia as it's going around the back of the moon, and he's asleep. So it's Mike Collins' dream, and it's great because to tie in with the fact that it's 1969 you have Mike Collins hanging out with Dennis Hopper on the moon in a dream sequence. (laughs) And that is just fabulous. It's a brilliant bit of writing.
0: All right. Well, a review of that coming up on this show for sure. I got to check that out. (laughs) Wasn't he, uh, and for like those few moments, he was the human farthest from earth. Wasn't he on the dark side of the moon?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, And the thing is that the other, the the other two guys uh, were, were sort of like, Jockeying against each other to see who is going to be the first guy out there. And he went, "Look, guys, it's between you two. For me, I'm just going up there, and I'm just fine with it. And I think that's great because, you know, it's the world's first designated driver outside the atmosphere.
0: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay, well, there'll be a link to buy that in the show notes as well. So please, please check fantastic. that out, listeners. <laughs> uh, Mike, thanks so much again for joining me.
1: My absolute pleasure.
0: <laughs> we'll be signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed.